Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So hello, everyone. Uh, this is Mireille Jano, and you're listening to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Today, we have as our guest, Professor Lauren Areza, author of To March for Others, The Black Freedom Struggle and the United Farm Workers, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Dr. Areza, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. I, I wonder if you'd begin by saying a few words about yourself, where you were born, perhaps, or where you went to school, and how you became a historian. So I was born in the, well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I went to the college at Williams College in Massachusetts with actually the intention of being a scientist. Um, I went in as a biology major, and I um, I did major in biology, got my BA in that. But I also minored in African-American studies. And by my junior year, realized that I enjoyed my minor <laughs> much more than my major. Um, but I was almost finished with my major, right. so I completed it. And um, after graduating, decided I wanted to go further with African American studies and um, talk to one of my professors, asking him, you know, what he suggested. And he suggested history because um, hmm. he thought it would give me a broad foundation. And I had taken maybe I don't know four history classes in college. Um, but I had done, you know, so much coursework with African American studies um, that um, I, I was able to get somehow get into graduate school. So I received my PhD in history uh, from UC Berkeley. So um, I I tell my my current students that it doesn't really matter <laughs> what you major in because right. I didn't <laughs> get the history through the traditional. Uh, way and now I'm an associate professor of history at Denison University. Right, that's yeah. So it's definitely a, a lot about the uh, a lot about the journey. Um, yes, yeah. So that's, that's great. So um, yeah, please tell us how you how you came to write uh, to march for others. Well, it began as my doctoral dissertation. Um, I, you know, again, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and. Um, Following college, but before graduate school, I worked as a research assistant at the Martin Luther King Jr. Papers Project at Stanford University. And from growing up in California and working at the King Papers at Stanford, I I started to question the very dominant Southern narrative of um, the Civil Rights Movement. And um, especially myself, I'm... Uh, I'm a Latina, and having grown up in a very multiracial, multicultural area, the kind of very black-white paradigm that the movement is framed in didn't match with my reality, with my upbringing, with my lived experience. So I started by just looking at uh, black and Chicano uh, interaction and cooperation during the era of civil rights. Um, so I went to, 
to do research at Wayne State University, where the United Farm Workers uh, papers are housed, and found so much on the UFW's alliances with various civil rights and black power organizations that that became my focus and that became my way in. So, um, so again, this became um, this was my dissertation, but then if, um, I radically um, revised it uh, for for the book to march for others. Okay, I'm really trying to focus <laughs> what what the book does, which the dissertation doesn't do, is really focus on what makes um, a cross racial coalition possible. So what this book is doing is looking at um, the various approaches and attitudes towards cross-racial coalition building within the black freedom struggle. So I'm using the UFW as a lens um, to to see how the major civil rights organizations um, dealt with this, this strategy of coalition building. Okay. Yeah, and, and in your first chapter, you uh, discuss uh, this the sort of historical alliance between the Student Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee, the SNCC, and the National Farm Workers, um, which mm-hmm. eventually um, the NFWA, which eventually became uh, UFW. Um, can you right. say more, I guess, about this coalition and its uh, its role in the founding of a broader rights movement? Right. So. Right, so the first, yeah, the first alliance, I talk about five different civil rights and black power organizations. Um, the first uh, organization of the black freedom struggle that that starts to work with, um, as you pointed out, what starts is the National Farm Workers Association, and then later the United Farm Workers, is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, and the foundation of that is really um, SNCC's ideology and organizational practice. They, their whole operation um, and their organizing is based on combating both uh, racial discrimination but also economic exploitation uh, because the people they're working with in the Deep South are people who are relegated to, to sharecropping and other um, manual um, labor um, because of both racial discrimination and um, and their class position. And so when SNCC organizers in California encounter the farm workers, it resonates with them because it's very what the United Farm Workers are doing um, in trying to um, uh, unionize in order to get safer working conditions and better treatment and higher pay, um, what they're doing and then the way that the growers are treating them um, and then the way the law enforcement in places like Delano, California are, um, are aligning themselves with the, the growers and um, persecuting the farm workers resonates because it's exactly what's happening to sharecroppers who are trying to um, demand their rights in the deep South. Mm-hmm. So, so SNCC begins um, first, by sending supplies, they're um, they're sending uh, two-way radios to help with with strikes and picket lines. Um, they send cars. Um, they then um, they send organizers. They send. It's not just about oh, here's some money, here's some supplies, mm-hmm. good luck. It's they send people um, to 
um, to conduct courses um, in nonviolent resistance. Because although Cesar Chavez, the leader of the farm workers, was nonviolent and very committed to it, it didn't mean that all the farm workers were. Right, of course. And he, yeah, and so he recognized that he needed some assistance in in teaching um, the farm workers how to best employ nonviolent resistance. So he calls upon uh, the San Francisco office of SNCC and asks them to send some organizers. So members of SNCC and also a few from, from the Congress on Racial Equality go and um, teach these courses. And Chavez had called them because he was very aware of what was happening in the South and civil rights movement. And he said, well, you know, he knew that they had the experience in this kind of um, uh, activism. <laughs> and so he sends, um, so so Core and SNCC go and they teach these classes on nonviolent resistance. And, you know, Core then moves on to other projects. But SNCC states, um, SNCC, um, especially the San Francisco chapter, continues to work with and support the farm workers. They're on picket lines. They're organizing um, uh, donations whether, you know, for food and clothing for striking farm workers. They're uh, writing about what the farm workers are doing it and, and publishing it in SNCC's newspaper, um, which was distributed nationwide. So they're also educating mm-hmm. um, other activists on what the farm workers are doing and really presenting it in a way that shows this is one struggle. Right? This is not like a separate movement. This is this is exactly what, you know, in line with what SNCC was doing. Right. These are all uh, strands in, 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 a, in a single Broad struggle. Right. And that, and, that, and that reflects SNCC's larger ethos. I mean, SNCC's newspaper was called The Movement. Right, right. Um, and as I say very often when, I'm, when I do, when I speak about this, um, activists at this era didn't, they didn't describe themselves as being part of so, like a, a single movement. They didn't say, I'm a civil rights activist. Or, right, I'm a, right. I'm the Chicano movement. I'm the Red Tower movement. That's not how they... That's not how they envisioned what they were doing. That's not how they envisioned themselves. They said, I'm part of the movement. <laughs> and so they themselves envisioned it as one huge movement. It's only after, in hindsight, or you know, from observers who have kind of separated these, these movements you know, and, and studied them individually, but it, the activists themselves saw it as one, uh, one large struggle. Yeah, that um, yeah, that is very interesting uh, because it, it it does in fact like um, as you say, um, just even the, the the terms that they use to describe um, what they're what they're engaged in, whether it's la causa or you know the the movement. I mean this this idea that um, it's it's not uh, civil rights or it's not only civil rights; it's also economic um, rights, class you know equality. Um, really points to the to the broadness of that um, that mission. So it's really interesting. The um, something I guess that, that might uh, I guess militate against that um, sort of unified um, ethos might be um, the the sort of issues of, of race that uh, begin to come up within SNCC in the in the mid sixties. Um, you talk about this in this in in the second chapter. Can you say more about this and the uh, I guess the impact that it, it had on on coalition building? Yeah, I mean, what happens in SNCC, as I talk about in the second chapter, I mean, their ethos, um, their ideology, their their praxis changes dramatically. 
um, you know, mostly in reaction to what they're experiencing um, in the South. And they start uh, de-emphasizing the class struggle, right? It all be, it becomes, um, well, they start to prioritize uh, race mm-hmm. and, and putting that and, and looking at black unity and black power as, as more important. And they're doing this, um, as I mentioned in the book, it's not, it's reactionary, but in certain, and not necessarily how we would expect. Um, part of it is that when they encounter self-sufficient black communities in the South, they're really inspired. Mm-hmm. Right? These are communities that are, um, they're cohesive, they're powerful, they're looking at Lowndes County especially, where um, black office holding becomes possible because of the large number of black landowners. Mm-hmm. And so integration and this kind of cross-racial cooperation becomes less important to SNCC. Not only becomes unimportant, but it just isn't their focus anymore. Right. But what that means for the farm workers is that then the farm workers are no longer a priority. And SNCC also starts to turn its attention away from rural um, and becomes more interested in organizing in urban areas, especially given the urban rebellions that were you know, that start happening, uh, particularly um, in the Northeast um, in the late 60s. And so this the shift of priorities means that they're not as committed to um, to this alliance with the farm workers. The, the alliance doesn't serve the same ends that it, that it had before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no longer really part of their, um, as I said, part of their priorities. Um, and so it's, it's, one of my readers um, told somebody who read my book told me that they found my second chapter to be sad. Um, <laughs> I, I, because, I I might echo that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like the first chapter with Snake and you know, the National Farm Workers Association coming together. There's so much promise there, right? And you can see, you know, how much you know Snake's participation is really essential to the National Farm Workers. I mean, Snake Snake uh, organizing you know helps. With you know the boycotting of Shelly Industries, they helped with the success of the delaying of the Sacramento March, and then you know a couple of years later, the alliance is over, right. um, with the exception of a couple, you know Marshall Gans, who basically switches from being a snake to being in the United Farm Workers, mm-hmm. um, and it happens pretty seamlessly. But aside from that, the alliance pretty much dissolves, and the leadership of the farm workers, particularly Cesar Chavez find it jarring. Right. You know, whereas this kind of ideological evolution in SNCC happens you know, pretty organically, it's still jarring to um, SNCC's allies. Right. Um, and so Chavez is kind of, you know, uh, confused as to why he's not getting this support anymore. Um, and so... Yes, it's it's. Yeah, I didn't realize that that chapter two would be so so sad, but yeah, because I, yeah, 
Right. And I think, I think too, as uh, sort of, as you alluded um, to before in hindsight, you know, we think as readers, we maybe think, Oh boy, we're sort of seeing the the same type of thing. Um, you know, you, you have the sense of deja vu, maybe, um, you know, the sort of, um, disintegrations of, of uh, coalitions that you, you see the hallmarks of that, um, in retrospect, which again, you, you know, talking about Chavez's, um, confusion about why this was, um, no longer, uh, the way it, it was, um, how it started out, um, mm-hmm. you know, would sort of account for that because, you know, when, when it's happening, you don't, don't quite realize, you know, uh, all the reasons and, and even in hindsight, I guess you don't really realize all the reasons, um, yeah, right. and, and, and also, and part of that is that, you know, communication networks are different. So Chavez and the farm workers are mostly working with the San Francisco SNCC office. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the SNCC chapters in the South, you know, sign off on what San Francisco is doing. But SNCC chapters in various places pretty much worked independently because <laughs> um, the idea was, you know, the emphasis on the grassroots, what's needed in that particular community. And so Mike Miller and others in San Francisco decided that, you know, this was what was needed. And so, you know, the leadership in the South were like, okay, fine, do what you want, but it's not, they weren't as involved. And so the changes that happened in Smith come from the Southern leadership. <laughs> and so, but that that ends up, you know, affecting the San Francisco Snake Office because then, you know, it devol- it dissolves. Right. Um, yeah. So it's definitely a lines of communication. You know, so Chavez is talking with San Francisco Snake, and these changes are happening in Atlanta, and he's not really privy to that. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and and throughout the the book, you uh, do um, sort of point out geography along with you know things like class and languages factors that we look at less frequent, uh, less frequently rather, uh, when talking about, you know, race relations in this country, accustomed as mm-hmm. we are to, to focusing on the, the black, white binary. Um, but, but this idea of, of geography influencing the, the lines of communication and that kind of thing, could you actually just uh, say more about the, the, the role of, of, of geography, whether in the sort of dominant discourse or just, you know, in, in more specific terms like, uh, communication? Right, right. I mean, Geography, and this is another way that the book is very different from the dissertation, because I really don't get into geography at all in the dissertation. But the more I revise, the more I realize that, you know, that place is really central to coalition building and whether or not it's going to happen. Because, you know, factors in one area are not the same factors in another area. And, you know, in California, uh, coalition building is or had, had historically been pretty common. Um, I talk about that quite a lot as far as, you know, the ways in which um, uh, African-Americans and Mexican-Americans and, and Asian-Americans were able to come together in Los Angeles on the 1940s. Um, and part of this is the African-American community uh, in the West was relatively small um, in proportion to the rest of the population. So if you're going to make social change, you need support, right? You need allies. Um, and so, and then also just given the diversity of certain areas, especially Los Angeles, the San Francisco Bay Area, they are regions remarkable for their diversity. And so 
uh, cross-racial coalition building makes sense because people out here are are operating in a multiracial context, mm-hmm. whereas in the South, it's a little harder to um, uh, to demonstrate the importance of that of that kind of strategy because, as you point out, you know it's a black-white binary. I mean, yes. The South has become much more diverse since um, some of the immigration reform of the 1980s. But in the 1960s and 70s, the Latino population in the South ranged from about 0.1 to 0.4%, um, depending on the state. Nice. That's tiny. Right. Um, so the idea of you know working with Latinos in this context just didn't really make sense. It didn't uh, match up with... The, the demographics of the South and, and the realities and race relations in the South. Mm-hmm. And so but then, you know, you ask about uh, communication. So then you have this struggle and you see it with SNCC, but you also see it with the uh, NAACP that I talked about in my third chapter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where you have these um, activists on the West Coast who are like, well, yeah, of course we need to do this. We need to do this kind of coalition building to do our work. And they're trying to explain this to their leadership right. um, in in the Northeast or in the South, and the leadership's just not getting it because they don't operate in that context. They're, they don't. They're not aware of those dynamics. They're not as knowledgeable of you know of Mexican Americans, and so then you have San Francisco SNCC and you have the West Coast Regional NAACP, basically, you know talking to a wall, they're just not really getting through to leadership in the East um, about why this, this matters. So then you end up getting tension between the West Coast chapters and the national leadership in the East mm-hmm, because they're just, they're not on the same page at all as mm-hmm. far as, you know, the direction that, you know, they want to go. And, and in that same chapter, you also um Sort of talk about the the, the leadership of the uh, United uh, Farm Workers Organizing Committee and their uh, you know eventual concern with um, with the support of the of the support of the Black Panther Party, right? Um, and uh-huh. and uh-huh. that seemed you know that's another area of contention. Can you uh, say a bit more about that? Um. What, what? Wait, I'm sorry. What do you mean about the concern? Well, um, right. So, so in um, in the third chapter, you sort of uh, talk about how the um, the uh, UFWOC's uh, support of the of the Black Panther Party um, caused quite a bit of disagreement, um, you know, inside and outside the union, um, yeah. just because of the the sort of obviously you know going um, away from the the nonviolent. Um, uh, Sort of mode of operation um, and and the the concerns about about that and so I'm just wondering yeah if you could if you could say a bit more sure about I mean that point of dissent I guess you know there was some concern so when the leadership of the uh, I guess it was the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee um, at the time when they began an alliance with the Black Panther Party some. Uh, members of the union are concerned because, you know, there's been this whole emphasis, as you pointed out, on nonviolence, and now there's this alliance with this group, you know, that emphasizes self-defense. And then you have um, other labor unions. So the example I talk about is this this man from a 
Woodworkers Union in Oregon mm-hmm. writes to Chavez very alarmed. But, you know, how could you possibly support them? Um, the thing that's challenging about writing about the UFW is, yes, it's a Chicano organization, but at the same time, it's a union. Right, right, right exactly. Right. So they're, and they're within the AFL-CIO, so then there's this whole other set of dynamics. And the thing with the farm workers, though, with the UFW, is it's a very, as much as it talks about the democracy and the empowerment of the farm workers, it's really pretty much a top-down organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if Chavez says, we're going to support the Black Panther Party, they're supporting the Black Panther Party. Right, which, which, he which he does. <laughs> right, and right. so he does, and he explains why, and nobody's going to argue with <laughs> right. So it happens. Um, so there is a bit of that concern, but, you know, going back to this this place, right, that the Black Panther Party is West Coast-centered. Mm-hmm. You know, Chavez had had experience prior to being in the farm, to leading the farm workers when he was with the community service organization. Um, you know, remember, he's, he starts his career as an organizer in San Jose. Mm-hmm. So he's in San Jose, he's in Oakland, and so he's, he's already been immersed in this, this very, um, uh, multiracial context. And so when the Black Panthers, you know, start organizing what they're doing, even, you know, even though he disagrees with some elements of what they're doing, it makes sense. But then also he's, you know, he was very intelligent and he understood what a lot of people didn't understand was that in preaching self-defense, the Panthers weren't necessarily advocating violence, despite how fiery their rhetoric was at certain times. You know, self-defense is in many ways just an extension of nonviolence. Like, you know, if you're nonviolent towards me, I'm nonviolent towards you. Right. It's, you know, but I'm not going to be nonviolent if you're attacking me. You know, right, right. Really, what the band. And so Chavez understood that, you know, and he understood that his full, you know, commitment to nonviolence, you know, embraced by Gandhi wasn't something that everyone could do, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you know, even though he had some disagreements, he, he understood and appreciated what, uh, what the Black Panther Party um, was doing. So there was some concern, but he pretty much, you know, quells that. Yeah. Right, and he he quells that, and and again, sort of to your to your um, point about his uh, his personal convictions about you know sort of the, the Gandhian um, notion of nonviolent resistance. He shares that um, he shares that with Martin Luther King, but uh, but King. Um, Again, sort of to one of your earlier points, is not um, perhaps not not as convinced um, of the value of of an alliance um, with Chavez. Right. Yeah. Um, can you say more about that that particular relationship? Yeah. So my fourth chapter on the relationship between the UFW and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, I think, is probably my my most might be my most shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter, my most surprising chapter, because, I mean, even I went into it, this project, with an assumption um, that um, there was some sort of alliance between King and Chavez. But then, as I said, you know, I worked with, at the King Papers Project, and I only found these two telegrams mm-hmm. that um, the King had ever sent to Chavez. And so, you know, I want to say, well, what, you know, what else is there? So, you know, I go to Wayne State and I look in the archives and that's all there is. Oh. <laughs> these two telegrams. Mm-hmm. But yet, the general public has 
um, meet King of Chavez um, mm-hmm. in their imaginations. Um, and there's, they're mentioned in the same breath very often. Um, Chavez is often called, you know, like the Chicano Martin Luther King. Right. And um, I believe the UFW even has, like, has something named after him. I think, like, an, an award or something. Um Right, they're often so you know, standing this, together in murals. Yeah, right. and you know the oh, and I and I've even read books where that claim that they met, and I'm like, no, <laughs> they never met. Right, they didn't work together. They weren't terribly interested in working with each other. And when I tell people this, they get kind of upset, mm-hmm. and it's not like I'm trying to, you know. Uh, destroy this this image that they have, but I'm sorry, it's just <laughs> not what happened. So I got one of my professors in graduate school just had the hardest time wrapping his mind around this, mm-hmm. and um, and then I presented a paper at the or uh, the conference of the Organization of American Historians a few years ago on the fact that there is really no uh, relationship between King and Chavez. And I got kind of yelled at mm-hmm. <laughs> during the discussion section. You know, this is by other historians. And they were really upset about this. But, you know, so whereas other chapters deal with maybe multiple organizations, I really had to, the fourth chapter, I really have to explain why it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's many, many reasons. It's not like, there's some scholars who said, oh, well, they were just both busy. Well, yes, they were very busy, but, you know, they did manage to work with other people. So what's exactly happening here? You know, so part is, you know, as place, as we've talked about, the, the king is in Atlanta. He's operating within a black-white binary. He's operating in an urban area. So you have this struggle by, you know, Chicanos, he's totally unfamiliar, in a rural area. Is just completely outside of what he's doing. It's not part of, you know, his program. Um, he becomes interested in the farm workers when he gets to the Poor People's Campaign in 1968. But by that time, um, you know, the farm workers are in the midst of a boycott. Mm-hmm. They've already gotten a lot of publicity. They've already gotten a lot of supporters. And King works reaches out to them, and it's too late. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're in the midst of their own struggle. They're like, I'm not putting this on hold for the poor people's campaign, right? So, in, um, a, in a sense, these become sort of competing, uh, competing movements, right? Right. Well, not necessarily competing, but it's just competing you know, for attention, uh, if, if not, yeah, else, right. Yeah, and you know, some of the farm workers or some of the volunteers who are organizing this boycott on the East Coast are like, Hey, can we go participate in the Poor People's Campaign? And Chavez says, No, like, mm-hmm. we've got our own struggle. We have enough to do. Like, we, we don't have time for this. And he doesn't say it, but what I argue is that, he, you know, Chavez is like, You know, when has SELC supported us? Right, right. And now they want us to drop everything and, and go support them? Like, no, that's not. On the lines really works. Um, so, you know, so part of it, as I said, is geography and the fact that this is just totally outside of King's realm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of it, I argue, is is class. That mm-hmm. these are, um, you know, these are impoverished agricultural workers. 
that's also not really King's background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's from a established family in Atlanta. Um, and that's, you know, the people in SNCC and the Black Panther Party who work with farm workers are people who have a background in rural agricultural labor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're able to make that con- that class-based connection that the king's really not able to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part of that is, just, you know, going back to the fact that, you know, despite the fact that the farm workers are also fighting for racial equality, they're a union, right? This, they, and, and Chavez himself said, I'm not a civil rights leader, I'm a union leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are some there are some scholars who argue that that King was very um, pro labor that he courted labor, but really the evidence shows that that King had a very conflicted relationship with organized labor. Mm-hmm. He he wanted economic justice, he wanted employment equality, he knew that unions could be a powerful source of support, especially within the Democratic Party. But, you know, he also knew that unions discriminated. Right. Um, so he, when he, when he talks to, to unions, it's really, if there's a, a recent book of, of speeches that he gives to unions, and some argue that this is proof of his close relationship with labor. But if you look at the speeches, they're really, he's asking for, you know, He's doing two things. He's asking for financial support from the unions, mm-hmm. and then he's also um, criticizing them for allowing discrimination to continue within their locals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's got this very conflicted relationship with the unions. So when the USW comes to prominence, he's you know due to his lack of, a fam- of familiarity with with Mexican Americans and their issues in the West. He's not seen as like, oh, here's this other movement for racial equality. Right. Here's another. Here's another union. Right. 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 And so, you know, why would I, you know, work with them? Right. So that just kind of compounds the, whatever wariness he already has. Right. Right. And so, as I said, you know, his thinking evolves, and he becomes much more attuned to what they're doing. But by this time. The farmer, you know, the UFW and Chavez are not really impressed. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. they've already formed several other multiracial coalitions, and they don't, you know, feel compelled to, to work within the Poor People's Campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, plus, you know, as I talk about the Poor People's Campaign, although it addresses poverty, it doesn't really address um, labor. Mm-hmm. It doesn't reach out to labor unions. And so um, the UFW leadership doesn't really see the, the value in participating in, uh, in the Poor People's Campaign. So, but, you know, then as I show in, in that same chapter, the relationship with the UFW and SCLC changes after King is assassinated. Right, exactly. Because, because, because Ralph Abernathy takes the helm. Yeah. And he's a very different style of leader. He grows up in a, with an agricultural background in rural Alabama. Um, he's very familiar with rural poverty, with agricultural labor. He also, you know, comes in at a time when SCLC is losing support mm-hmm. 
And so he understands the value of working with the farm workers in a way that the king had not. Right, and, and um, as well as King's widow, as you mentioned. As you right, so, I mean, and that, yeah, and same with Coretta Scott King, that she comes also from rural Alabama, from an impoverished agricultural background. And so she understands what the farm workers are doing in a way that her husband had not. But then also, you know, one of the things I point out is, you know, these coalitions really have to benefit everyone involved. <laughs> it just be one-sided. And so for, for Coretta Scott King, it's a way for her to... Um, to demonstrate her own skills as an activist mm-hmm. um, and to bring prominence to um, the the King Center, which she had just established. So, so a, an alliance between UFW and SCLC does happen, but not until, um, you know, King has been assassinated and no longer president. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as I said, that's the thing that um, that's, that's a surprise uh people the most in reading this book. Um, I was invited to give a book talk as, somewhere as part of the King holiday, and I said, well, <laughs> you might want to. I said, you might want to read chapter four. four. And so it ended up that I, I, I did give Joe a talk there, but um, but it wasn't for the King holiday. Sure, sure. It was for something else. Sure. So, yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah, and and again, sort of talking about that, um, the what some of what comes in the wake of, of King's assassination um, in, um, in, in the, the fifth cha- chapter, which is entitled An, a natural alliance of poor people. Um, you talk a lot about uh, black Panther, uh, Bobby seals candidacy for mayor of Oakland, California, um, mm-hmm. which seems is like an important turning point in uh, the alliance between the UFW um, certainly in the, and the, and the Black Panther Party, and in many, um, senses sort of signaled an, an important end of some kind, uh, you know, um, in, in terms of these sorts of alliances or the potential for these sorts of alliances. Could you, uh, talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, so as I pointed out, um, you know, alliances, make most sense when they benefit everyone involved and, and when there's an alignment of, of interest. And so when Bobby Seale runs for mayor of Oakland in 1973, it comes at a time where both the Panthers and the UFW is looking more towards um, electoral politics um, as a way to achieve social change. And so their, their interests are aligning more. Um, Chavez sees the allure of having one of the the farm workers' longtime supporters in public office in mm-hmm. a position where he can he can you know both be a platform for the farm workers' issues, but then he could also make changes within Oakland city government that will benefit the farm workers. So I think this is probably I'm not sure which would be more surprising about my book, the chapter where I talk about the lack of a relationship between Chavez and King or the fact that I show that there's quite a, a productive alliance between the farm workers and the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's also what I think a lot of people wouldn't um, assume. Um, but, you know, as I said, despite their differences, despite this, you know, emphasis on nonviolence and um, uh, versus self-defense, that the farm workers and the Black Panther Party 
actually do have quite a bit in common mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as far as what they're trying to do. Um, and again, so there's this, this shift for both of them and this interest in electoral politics because the growers in California are also trained towards politics. Mm-hmm. They try to push through a proposition that will outlaw um, all agricultural boycotts and they will and that will limit the ability of farm workers to unionize. Um, so since the growers are turning to politics, it makes sense for the, the UFW also to turn that direction. And then same with the um, Black Panther Party. Um, some of their programs, you know, they had um, got quite a bit of community, of popularity within the community for having... Um, these, what they call their survival programs. And those survival programs, particularly the free breakfast for children program, starts to be picked up by government agencies. Um, also, but also like PTAs and church groups start doing their own breakfast programs. And they started saying like, okay, we did this one program and look at the change that it's created. Um, so what else could we do to create change from within? Mm-hmm. And then plus you have the, the rise of black politicians and black mayors in particular in other areas of the country. So you have Carl Stokes um, and people like that. And yeah. so they're like, okay, if this can happen in Cleveland, um, and it happens, of course, in uh, Gary, Indiana, and they're like, well, you know, what can we do in Oakland? Then? Right, right. Harold you know, Washington in this- Chicago. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, so they, you know, so... So getting involved in electoral politics also then makes sense for the Black Panther Party. So, so yes, yeah, so Bobby Seale runs for, for mayor of Oakland, and um, even though, you know, he had a, a policy of not pursuing endorsements, he goes and asks Chavez to uh, endorse his campaign, which Chavez happily does. Um, and not only does he just send out a press release saying he's endorsing him, but he... He goes to Oakland. He -hmm. goes to Oakland. He walks through the Spanish-speaking neighborhoods campaigning uh, for SEAL. He takes pictures with SEAL that are used in in, uh, campaign flyers that are printed in English and Spanish. And his support really does quite a lot to help elevate um, SEAL's image within the Latino community in Mm -hmm. Oakland. Mm -hmm. so in just the same way that the survival programs really elevated the Panthers' image in the black community, mm-hmm. the um, Chavez endorsement does the same thing in the Latino community. Um, and although um, Seal doesn't win, he actually, you know, he he does qualify for a runoff, and um, he does um, kind of um, raise the visibility of certain concerns within the Latino community, such as uh, bilingual educate, uh, election materials. <laughs> and so um, he, even though he doesn't win, his, his, uh, his platform does raise a lot of important issues and does pave the way for future black office holders um, in Oakland. Um, so it ends up being a very, um, uh, even though, as I said, he doesn't win, it still ends up being, you know, very productive, uh, for both the farm workers um, and the and the Panthers and the and the black and the larger black and Latino communities in Oakland. 
Well, and um, to that point, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, tell us what, what you think um, the legacy is, if there is one, of these sorts of coalitions um, in contemporary politics or contemporary activism? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> what what my book shows is that um, one, that coalitions are possible, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, people often think that there's just no way to bridge these divides and come together. I mean, you know, we're looking at groups here that are separated by, by race, by ethnicity, sometimes by language, you know, depending, um, religion, um, sometimes place, but yet these groups actively sought out these alliances. They actively, they, they made an effort to work together and then doing so paid out dividends. And so I think what my book shows is that, you know, coalition building is not just possible, but it's valuable. It's worth doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it could be instructive for for activists. And especially there's been a, a tendency, and I, and I don't know if I'm, um, if this is kind of what I'm responding to or not, but there, you know, there's been a, a tendency, especially in the popular media, to really inflate any kind of conflict between blacks and Latinos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's gotten to the point, and I, and I think other scholars agree with me on this, that it's gotten to the point where it makes people assume that conflict is just a natural state between right. blacks and Latinos, and that there's no possibility for coalition. You see this especially in the popular media in Los Angeles. And so there's been a proliferation of scholarship, you know, of which mine is included, that seeks to unpack Black-Latino relations. And so I know it's not just conflict. It's not strictly coalition either, but there are, you know, there are moments of both. And there's places in between coalition and conflict. Um, it's not as... Uh, negative as the dynamic as the media um, presents it. Um, so there are these, you know, historical moments of coming together. And, you know, there are moments of coming apart as well. But it's much more complicated um, than, than, as I said, what the media um, presents it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's- yeah, things are often more uh, nuanced on on the ground. Um, yes. Well, um, Dr. Areza, we have uh, taken up a lot of your time, um, but I'm, I'm very interested to know what you might be working on right now. So right now, I'm being I'm conducting research for a project. Um, one of the it kind of is an I guess somewhat of an offshoot of my book, and then in my book when I talked about. Know, the final chapter when I talked about the USW and the Black Panther Party campaign in Oakland, one of the things that I mentioned is when um, the farm workers are campaigning in Oakland against Proposition 22, mm-hmm. the Black Panther Party arranges for the farm workers to stay on the campus of Mills College, which is a, a very beautiful private women's college. Right. And so that kind of raised a flag for me. Um, Mills is the oldest women's college in the West. And barely anything has been written on it. So what I am doing, I'm conducting research on the relationship between Mills College 
and the black freedom struggle in Oakland. So um, Oakland, I mean, sorry, both Oakland and Mills are founded in 1852. Okay. And Oakland kind of grows around Mills. When Mills is built, it's in the countryside. And now Mills is kind of in the middle of a, a working class, um, a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Um, so I want to see how uh, the changing demographics, but also the, the movement for um, social change, particularly black power in Oakland, affected Mills. So looking at the relationship between Oakland and, and the college, but then also looking at the activism of of students at Mills that leads to the um, increased recruitment of students and faculty of color and also leads to the creation of an ethnic studies department. Um, and so Mills, um, and as I mentioned, Mills has been really left out. There's mm-hmm. books about Merritt, about Berkeley, about Stanford, and um, and really Mills hasn't been uh, explored, which I find surprising, you know, given um as I said, it's the oldest women's college in the West. And so, and it's right in the middle of Oakland. It's right across the highway from Merritt. So, um, so that is uh, what I'm in, in the midst of uh, researching. So right now I'm in, in residence in California conducting that research. Wow. That, that sounds like a great project. And I, I definitely uh, look forward to hearing more about it. And we'll certainly um, follow up with you because we'd uh, love, of course, to speak to you again uh, about that project uh, when it, when it uh, comes out in book form. Wonderful. Great. Well, thanks again uh, very much uh, for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you again. Uh, we've had uh, the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Lauren Areza, uh, author of To March for Others, The Black Freedom Struggle, and The United Farm Workers. Thanks again. Thanks for having me.